of Anesthesia on Air, podcast from the Royal College of Anesthetists. I am Jenny Westerway, Chair of the Patient Voices at the Royal College of Anesthetists. Today we're going to talk about how anesthetists can work with patients who are feeling anxious about having surgery and an anaesthetic using hypnotherapy and appropriate use of language to help those patients. And this conversation follows on from some work that was done earlier this year by the college um, when they produced a series of recordings for patients to help them relax before surgery and to develop a positive mindset about the procedure and recovery. And those recordings, which are available on the website, were developed in partnership with the British Society of Clinical and Academic Hypnosis. There's a link to them in this podcast on the, on the, with the info on the page. Um, so I'm joined by three people with loads of relevant knowledge and experience for this topic. Dr. Jane Boissier is a former GP and psychiatrist, and she is president of the British Society of Clinical and Academic Hypnosis. Dr. Samantha Black is a consultant paediatric and perioperative anaesthetist at the Medway NHS Foundation Trust, and she's also the college's patient information lead. Dr. Paul Slater is a consultant anaesthetist at the Northampton General Hospital. So... First of all, to set the scene, I was wondering, Jane, could you could we start with the absolute basics, please? Would you be able to set some parameters for us, what we're talking about when we use the term hypnosis? Well, certainly, I will definitely have a go for you, Jenny. It's not my favourite question, because as Alan Sinner says, um, uh, describing hypnosis is a bit like describing time. It's very difficult, but you know it when you experience it. And so describing hypnosis is not easy, but we know, we know quite a lot about it. And I wonder if, uh, because of the difficulties we have in describing it sometimes, whether or not that's a, one of the reasons people find it difficult to take on board. Uh, but the proper definition, the definition that we usually use, is that it's a focus of attention and uh, a reduced peripheral awareness and an increased suggestibility. Okay, those are the sorts of ways that we describe it. Um, and maybe Paul and Sam, when they speak later on, might have their own definitions. Um, so uh, basically, when I describe it to my patients, I will say that it's just a normal state that we all go in and out of. Um, if you focus your attention on a film or uh, reading a book, become totally absorbed and engrossed in a certain activity, then you can become in a hypnotic state uh, and also, if you, um, one of the examples that's frequently used is if you drive on a route that you know well, you're driving back home from work, um, then you get home and you just can't quite remember the journey. But you do know that if something had happened on that journey that was different or out of the ordinary or concerning, then you would be instantly back with the here and now. Uh, people often say penny for your thoughts when you go into a sort of a state where you are internally focused rather than being aware of the, um, you know, what's going on around you. And if ever you've tried to get your children off, a, off an iPad, I'm sure that you're aware that they don't seem to know you're there at all. 
Thank you. I find that really helpful insight. And it's quite different from what the public perception of hypnosis might be. Yeah. I guess, wouldn't you say, Jane? Absolutely. Um, unfortunately, uh, because of stage hypnosis, people think that uh, hypnosis is something where the hypnotist takes over control. Whereas, in fact, when you experience it yourself, and what I would suggest is that your uh, people who are listening to this podcast actually listens to the recordings that we've provided for um, the Royal College. If they listen to them, they too might get some experience of what it feels like. Um, and it's different for everybody. Uh, we're, all, we're all very different. And uh, some people are highly hypnotizable. Five to 10% of the population are highly hypnotizable. And those are the people, of course, that the stage hypnotists will use for their demonstrations. Uh, everybody else, um, 60 to 70% are moderately hypnotizable, but everybody can benefit from it. Absolutely everybody, even the low hypnotizables like me. And, and I know you've, um, I, I understand, Jane, that you've said in the past that the, the lack of the availability of hypnosis on the NHS is a tragedy. What do you think it is that patients are missing? Or maybe another way of putting it of it, what do you think that it is that patients can gain if their clinicians can use hypnotic, hypnosis, hypnosis techniques with them? That's an absolute huge question, Jenny, and one that I would love to answer. <laughs> My background is general practice and psychiatry, and when I discovered hypnosis, I discovered that I could treat the patients who I had not been able to treat with all my knowledge from both psychiatry and general practice. Um, most of our colleagues, okay, maybe not anaesthetists, your 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 patients maybe are um, you you may see less of this, but certainly if working as a GP. 50% of your patients will tend to have symptoms for which there is no underlying organic cause. And even if patients do suffer from um, unpleasant conditions like Parkinson's and uh, uh, multiple sclerosis or asthma, etc., we all know that there is a psychological component. And if everybody knew the simple non-pharmacological techniques that can enable them to reduce those symptoms. Just imagine what a difference that would make to health service throughout the world. This is a very simple technique that anybody can learn. Um, you don't have to invest a huge amount of time um, as you do maybe with mindfulness. Um, it's something that can be done very quickly and easily. And many of your anaesthetist colleagues will have discovered just how valuable that is for reducing anxiety and pain in acute situations. Um, but obviously, with my background being general practice in psychiatry, I'm more interested in functional disorders. And we do actually have, um, you know, uh, uh, nice guidance for the treatment of, or at least not the treatment, the management of uh, irritable bowel syndrome. But even though we've got that, we still find it difficult to get those services on the NHS. If all healthcare professionals were aware, more aware of the language that they use and how 
easily um, they can uh, inadvertently feed negative suggestions to their patients, um, causing nocebo effects, then uh, I think that the we would all gain hugely from that. Um, basically, uh, everybody's aware of the placebo effects, but not many people are aware of the much more powerful nocebo effect. And when patients come to consult, they are often extremely anxious. And when people are in a very anxious state, they are in a trance-like state, which means they are more highly suggestible. And therefore, the language that we use at such times is hugely important. And people pick up very quickly anything negative which is said to them in those sorts of situations. So we have to be extremely careful not to um, seed these kinds of negative suggestions which make people feel unwell. I could go on and say, do you know the song that, uh, you know, by Jove, you do look ill, you know, you go out feeling good and everyone you meet says, oh dear, you do look, don't look well, you really don't look well. And by the time you get home, you feel like you're dying. <laughs> negative suggestions are very powerful. <laughs> Okay, thank thank you very much. I, I wonder whether it might be a good time now to bring in um, Paul and Sam. So um, uh, maybe if I start with with uh, Sam, Sam, if you could tell us when was it that you first started to incorporate hypnosis into your practice? Was there something that prompted you, or what was it that brought brought you to see the uh, the benefits for patients? Yeah, thanks, Jenny. Um, I think I first started to think more about language used in my day-to-day -day practice um, about six or seven years ago um, when I went on a few courses based on nocebo, hypnosis and anesthesia and um, became rather sold on the idea about how our communication skills affect anxiety and the nocebo effect of the words used um, in our day-to-day -day practice. And um, being a paediatric anaesthetist, um, thinking about enhancing my palliative care through skill communication and use of language, I think I've really focused on since becoming a consultant. Um, I've really thought about how negative expectations and anxiety um, can can affect a, a child's hospital episode. And so if we can reframe that into something more positive, um, whereby a patient's potential negative thoughts or feelings or beliefs um, can be presented in a positive way, this um, potentially has a um, chance to affect their outcome. So, for example, um, as clinicians, we could say, for example, we will give you medications that will help you feel hungry so you can look forward to your favourite food afterwards, rather than saying we can give you medicines to stop you feeling sick and therefore that nocebo effect of a sick word um, not being particularly helpful to children, for example. Um, and, and other things, so such as um, when you're cannulating a child, uh, it's ingrained into us since medical training um, and our communication focuses on the sort of conscious understanding um, of stated feelings and facts. So saying sharp scratch um, or bee sting, um, which isn't necessarily helpful. Um, and our training isn't necessarily geared towards having an appreciation of patients' subconscious perceptions and behaviour, for example. So there's ways to sort of rephrase that. Um, and you could just simply say, we're placing the little butterfly or the plastic straw now, for example. So it's actually something that everyone can do. It takes no time at all. It's, it's, it's rephrasing your words. 
Yeah, great. Thank you. Paul, how about you? It's a number of years, I understand, since you've been uh, incorporating these techniques into your practice. What brought you to, to see the benefits? Well, about 15 years ago, I went to, um, as part of my training at the time, I went to Australia to do a fellowship in obstetric anesthesia. And I didn't know anything about hypnosis at that time. And whilst I was there, I met an anesthetist who was speaking to patients in a vastly different way to which I'd observed before. Um, and he, I sort of talked to him about it, and he was using hypnosis and hypnotic communication, and I became interested in it that way. Um, so that was Alan Cena was the anaesthetist who's done lots of research into um, the use of hypnosis and hypnotic techniques around uh, anaesthesia and perioperative care. Um, so that was the thing that um, sort of stoked my curiosity, really. And you can see instantly the effects um, some well-judged words and phrases can have um, on patients in uh, stressful situations whilst patients are having invasive procedures. So I did further training, and so I've probably been using hypnosis since then, really, but in an increasing way, so maybe for the last 15 years or so. So I've been using hypnosis really both informally and formally, and I would sort of divide hypnosis into those under those two banners, really, and informal hypnosis really is the use of hypnotic communication techniques um, with all patients who are undergoing invasive or potentially stressful procedures uh, just as a routine, just integrating those words and phrases that now we know have um, a, a very good uh, evidence base behind them to produce real benefits in patient anxiety, pain, experience and all sorts of other things. Um, I also use hypnosis on a formal basis to help patients. And by formal, I mean seeing patients in a clinic-based setting in advance of invasive procedures um, to help prepare them for, for what's to come. So that may be patients who have um, who've got sort of phobias, um, needle phobias or anxieties about having operations, um, or in the past, patients who wanted to use hypnosis, say, for um, uh, labor analgesia. Um, so, yes, that's sort of my, my, my backstory, really. Yeah. One thing I wondered, Paul, um, when, when thinking about the focus that um, hypnosis allows you as a clinician to um, uh, the focus on the, the the, the positives or at least maybe not not focusing on the negatives where whether there was a, a risk for some patients that they might not be fully informed about those negatives before a procedure and how is that a risk and do you how how do you deal with it if it is uh something that that, that could be a problem yes that's that's a good question it's a very common question we get asked and um I think it's very important to warn patients of um, of risks of operations, and we, and we turn that consent, don't we? So 
before operations, um, it's important to give um, a balanced risk profile to the patients. And I think those of us who use hypnosis and are are not saying at all that we shouldn't say negative things to patients in consent terms. But I think it's important to realize that there comes a point at which you draw a line under consent and you say, okay, consent's finished now, and now the focus turns to using a form of communication that optimizes a patient's journey through um, a stressful, invasive, potentially stressful, invasive experience. Um, and uh, that's where hypnotic communication, use of hypnosis, has a strong now research evidence base behind it as the best form of communication to use, I think. Um, so that's important to understand. You know, once you've finished with consent, that, as Jane and Sam have already said, there's no real need to keep warning patients about potentially painful things or you might feel sick or you know, this might hurt or this is this this is the point where you must really stay still because this is the point where we could do some damage with a needle. Um, the consent process has been finished with earlier on and now the focus is on optimizing the patient's experience through this through this procedure. Yeah. Yeah. So you're thinking about sequence and timings and managing all that in the the best way for the patient. I think it's about sort of um appreciating sort of psychological consequences particularly in children um that a poor hospital experience can can lead to so and how how sort of these techniques particularly the use of language um, and then as as Paul has said the informal techniques of hypnosis can really help so so the short-term psychological consequences of a poor hospital um, episode for a child can include um tantrums or bedwetting nightmares anxiety or regress milestones for example which would be quite significant for families and can last many weeks um and then some of these symptoms can be displayed a year later or even in, in long term and can um, include um, school refusal or poor performance um, or low self-esteem um and also sort of health avoidance um, behaviours that's linked to obesity or heart disease, for example, later in life. So I think I think when you dive deeper into what seems like um, just very simple communication techniques, it actually has a very powerful outcome. What advice would you give to other clinicians, in particular anaesthetists, who would like to start to incorporate hypnosis techniques? I think it's important to realise that a lot of what we say and the language that we use, we haven't often consciously thought that that's the thing, the best thing to say. So, for instance, a lot of anaesthetists will say sort of sharp scratch and a sting. And it's it's because that language has been subconsciously assimilated by the anaesthetist from other anaesthetists um, in the course of their training normally. And you, you pick up the language of the group that you work with and um, and you can see that in many other sort of spheres of um, society my daughter for example and her friends all speak in the same way they they have this same sort of language and way of speaking and and it's it's largely to for us to sort of um, feel part of the group we're in um, 
So when you're starting off, it can feel slightly uncomfortable if you were to change everything about how you speak as an anaesthetist. That would be unrealistic to start with. So it's best to start with sort of small phrases and small things that you can do differently and then just notice the effects and that will lead you further on. So for instance, if you're somebody who says sharp scratch and a sting, you can replace that by a neutral phrase. So you could say, um, okay, something on the skin now as you put the drip in. Or you could say, here we go now. Or you could say, as you put in some local anesthetic in, you could say, and here's, this is something to make the skin nice and numb, which again is a truthful statement to make because that's what you are doing. You're giving something to make the skin nice and numb. Um, you could, for example, use some simple um, phrases whilst you're giving oxygen to breathe. So many, most anaesthetists will probably give oxygen to breathe um, before they get the patient off to sleep. So you could uh, utilize breathing exercises to make the patient feel more relaxed. So as you give the patient the mask, you could say, is it okay if I give you some oxygen to breathe? The patient will say yes. And just that question and, and will give, uh, make the patient feel as if they've got some control because they're being asked and they will say yes. And then you can say, and the only thing you need to do now is to take some nice, deep, steady breaths. Just focus on taking some nice, deep breaths all the way to the top and all the way out. And that does two things for the anaesthetist. It helps, of course, with pre-oxygenation because we want nice, steady, big, deep breaths to really get oxygen into the lungs. But it, at the same time, it helps the patient focus just on the breathing, taking their attention away from everything else which is happening outside them. So you're suggesting an internal focus on breathing, but at the same time um, optimizing the respiratory mechanics. So that takes no time. That's actually, um, you're just doing that whilst you're giving the anesthetic. So just a couple of simple things that people can do. Thank you. I'm feeling now quite, quite um focused on my breathing and I'm feeling a lot better so thank you I, I also appreciate that Sam I was wondering whether there was a case that you can think of in the past where you've used hypnosis techniques and they've made a really big difference to the patient uh, great question Jenny um, so I think my focus here will be on paediatric anesthesia so hypnosis requires concentration um, and imagination and children appear to have a higher hypnotizability um, than adults and particularly children below the age of six can move really easily between reality and fantasy. So storytelling through suggestion or imagination and dissociating from the environment um, in hypnosis is very effective um, in children compared to adults where a more formal technique um, of eye closure or relaxation may be needed. Um, and the language of hypnosis can be really effective in children as they already live in this world of imagination and um, fantasy. And so this hypnosis and hypnotic communication allows the anaesthetist to give suggestions to children that can enhance their proactive care. And as I said before, reframe those negative expectations um, and, and teach children to sort of manage symptoms such as anxiety or pain or, or nausea. So... 
Um, and just to set the scene a little bit, um, sort of paediatric anxiety affects all children. Um, and 75% of children experience anxiety in the anaesthetic room. So I think it's quite a significant um, uh, problem um, for us as anaesthetists or paediatric anaesthetists um, to, to deal with. So uh, I had this child, um, they were scheduled for a hernia repair. Um, they were very anxious about the anaesthetic due to um, a previous traumatic gas induction. Um, and so I spent some time on the ward at pre-assessment, listening to this child, gaining a rapport, listening to his concerns um, and finding out more about what his favourite place or activity was um, so that we, we we felt that we could really um, understand one another and he had some trust in me. Um, obviously, as a child, he replied something to do with food or says anything like my son, it's always to do with food. Um, and he replied, ice cream. Uh, and goes to the ice cream um, parlour with friends. Um, and then I thought it was really important to give him a bit of choice um, and a bit of control. So I asked him, how would he like to go to sleep today? And he asked for an, an IV induction. And I suggested to him that when he came to theatre, he could take himself off to his favourite place, which is the ice cream place with friends, stay there whilst... Um, we as an anaesthetic team and theatre team looked after him and we would make sure that he would wake up comfortable and safe um, and that he'd have something nice to eat afterwards, um, which he seemed quite happy with um, and the, the parents were also quite relaxed about it all, which also helped. Um, and then when he came to the anaesthetic room, um, I suggested that he should imagine being at the ice cream place right now um, and what did it smell like? Uh, what was his favourite flavour ice cream? What did it taste like? Um, and could he describe to you what it felt like to be in, in that ice cream parlour with friends? So, I mean, that's a technique called lived-in imagination. Um, I suggested that um, we'd already put some cream on his hands, the numbing cream, um, and that it felt cold, a bit like ice cream too, um, which he quite liked because everything was linked with the place that he felt the happiest and um, safest with his friend so he, he he was really sold on this idea of, of ice cream um, and the magic cream also being like ice cream on his hands um, and I said to him that you know your hand might feel a bit heavier a bit cooler like ice cream um, but he wouldn't be bothered by it because he was feeling very safe and comfortable with his parents and also in that um, imagination of being with his friends. Um, I asked him if he wanted to climb onto the bed um, or would he like his mum to help him, um, giving him again some choice and control. Um, and when he was lying down, I said, take yourself off to that favourite place again. Um, I asked if his hand was feeling much more heavier and colder and comfortable and safe um, and could he feel it less? Um, and he was so suggestible, he said, he said yes. Um, and I continue with that repetition of, of feeling safe and comfortable and not bothered um, and that the hand was feeling very numb and I was able to successfully place a, a cannula um, in the anaesthetic room for him. And he didn't move his arm at all. Um, at this point, I think it was really important to praise him. Uh, I said how good he'd been um, and he had successful surgery. And when he woke up again, he was very comfortable, calm and hungry in recovery and and quite luckily we had some ice cream on the ward for him so it all fitted in really nicely um and his parents are very thankful for a successful um, um anesthetic and surgery whereby 
his son had a their son had a much better experience. So, um, it was really uh, as an anaesthetist, as a paediatric anaesthetist, starting out in hypnosis, um, for me too, it was a really satisfying experience knowing that those simple changes that I'd learnt in my language, um, to deliver my um, anaesthetic could really help that child. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you. That's really kind of brought it to life for me, step by step, and how that might work for a, in a particular case. So um, thank you for that. Um, Paul, I just wanted to talk to you a little bit about um, sharing good practice, because I understand that you have, you've managed to do that at your hospital, and there's another consultant who uses hypnosis, and that you teach others around the hospital. I just wondered whether colleagues at your hospital have always been quite receptive to incorporating um, hypnosis into practice or is this something that's grown as you have have you had to persuade people how's that been over time um well it's true we've we've got um one of my colleagues uh, a specialty doctor in anesthetics who is now trained and using hypnosis in a similar way to me and we've also got um one of our um, acute pain nurses who's trained and starting to use hypnosis to help manage um, pain in the hospital. Um, so, so they've been some really big sort of steps forward in the last sort of couple of years or so. I think people are always receptive to hypnosis. I think people are innately curious about hypnosis, and that, and that's both staff and patients. Um, I think there's a belief amongst most people that hypnosis is a thing and it works, it does something, even if there's maybe a, a lack of true understanding about what it is amongst most people and, and how it produces its effects. So I don't think there's a problem with um, um, almost selling hypnosis in that way. I think um, probably the difficulty we've had over the years is... Um, being able to have enough people to teach hypnosis to make it um, user-friendly, to make it something that people think that, yes, this is something I, I can I can do and get along with. I think that's starting to change now with training courses. Um, we do some uh, seminars and training courses at the, um, the Association of Anaesthetists, and we've also done similar things at the Royal College. And so I think slowly we are starting to make hypnosis something that people can understand and start to utilise in daily practice. Um, so, yeah, I think I think we're making strides with it, but it's still um, it's still something that um, there aren't, as Jane was saying earlier, there aren't enough people using really a technique that comes without any real side effects at all really at the level we're talking about um, and it's so easy to learn after um, after doing uh, just really some basic training. Thank you and what's the evidence base like? Are there studies that we can look at that show the impact of hypnosis on patients? Yeah I think I think there are a number of neuroimaging studies now which have confirmed that, that there are discrete changes happening within the brain in patients who are experiencing hypnosis. So there's um, been changes demonstrated in pain pathways um, in, MRI, in fMRI scans and, and PET scans. Um, and it's, it's quite a big topic. 
Um, but I think I think the message is is that there are lots of studies now which show that hypnosis is a real thing because there are discrete changes happening in the brain which are picked up by neuroimaging scans. Um, alongside that, there are lots of clinical studies now showing that there are changes in um, uh, all sorts of patient outcome measures um, as a result of hypnosis. So there's probably more evidence for improvements in pain uh, with the use of hypnosis than with anything else, but improvements in anxiety scores, um, improvements in hospital discharge in patients who've um, had hypnotic hypnosis as part of their treatment, um, fewer hospital complaints from people who've used hypnosis, um, and all sorts of other things in um, uh, other aspects of anesthesia care. There's studies now to show that randomized control trials, um, and, and recently was the first randomized control trial um, where children were um, randomized to use of hypnosis or uh, general anesthesia, um, and the hypnosis group um, came out much better in terms of um, uh, patient satisfaction, discharge rates, and all of those patients, bar one in that study, were, went through their surgery under hypnosis successfully. Um, so there are sort of, you know, increasing clinical studies coming um, out all the time now. Well, I think the main thing is um, for people listening to this who are looking at um, further training or finding out more about hypnosis, there's lots of resources. So um, we do um, a training, one-day training course at the Association of Anesthetists, and we normally do that in February of each year. We've been doing that maybe for four or five years now. Um, so that's one to look out for for people you new to hypnosis. Um, and hopefully throughout the year we'll be developing some more um, courses with um either the Association or the Royal College of Anesthetists in the future as well. Um, that might lead you on to thinking, I want to know even more. And if you do, the place to go to is the British Society of Clinical and Academic Hypnosis, which is the, um, the, the National Society for Medical... Well, for healthcare professionals who are interested in the use of hypnosis. So that's not just doctors, but there's dentists, physios, midwives, counsellors, all sorts of people using hypnosis who, um, who train with this society. So if you're really stoked by this, that's the place to go to. Um, with regarding listening to hypnosis, as you've already mentioned, we've got some recordings now on the Royal College of Anesthetists website as part of the Fitter Better Sooner package. They're under the uh, Preparing the Mind section on Fitter Better Soon. And we've recorded two hypnosis um, uh, sessions on, uh, which are freely accessible on the website that anybody can listen to. Um, so um, that will, if you're curious about hypnosis and would like to sort of find out what it sounds like, then feel free to plug the headphones in and listen to those uh, sessions. But they're really designed to um, refer uh, for, for reference for your patients. So 
if you have patients in preoperative clinics um, who are struggling with anxiety and you, you want to help them out, refer them to these uh, recordings because they're designed specifically for patients who are suffering with preoperative anxiety uh, to help them through the journey of going through an operation or invasive hospital procedure. Um, our hospital in Northampton, we're shortly um, releasing um, more recordings on our website to cover all sorts of uh, hypnosis for all sorts of procedures um, for childbirth, for patients experiencing pain, um, one or two other things as well. So um, just some ideas of places to go. If you're after things to read, then um, the, probably the best books at the moment, Alan Cena has written a book about communication for anaesthetists, which has obviously got a very hypnotic um, focus. Um, hopefully very soon, um, there'll be a, a British Journal of Anesthesia CPD article um, in the supplement coming out, hopefully in the next few months, to summarise hypnosis and what of what we've discussed today, really. Um, so, yeah, just some ideas for further resources. Thank you, Paul. That's lots of ideas where people can look further. And I think um, lots of useful links will be on the, uh, the web page uh, alongside this podcast. So, so, Jane, do you have any reflections on why hypnosis isn't more widely used in the NHS, given some of the benefits that we have talked about? Yes, I've got lots of thoughts on that topic, because uh, hypnosis has been around for 200 years, and yet it's taken a very, very long time for it to be accepted by the profession. Um, Many wonderful uh, physicians in the past have advocated the use of hypnosis. Um, Braid, Elliotson, Esdale was doing um, hypnosis at the same time as ether uh, came into fashion. Now, the problem with hypnosis is nobody's going to make any money out of it. Uh, basically, hypnosis you know, free at the point of source, learning how to do it, compared with something you can make lots of money out of. Now, my concern at the moment is the fashionable altered states of consciousness are going to be psychedelics. They're going to be VR. Now, what better VR can you have than your own visual imagination? I mean, you've got it with you all the time. You don't need anything, but nobody can make out of money out of you because you've got it, it's yours, you've got the power to use it. Just imagine how wonderful that is. But the trouble with doctors in the past has been they've seen that it works, but they're afraid that it's going to be labelled as quackery. And people like Esdale, not Esdale, Esdale and Braid seem to be okay, but um, uh, Elliotson and um, Charco and um, their reputations are destroyed. They they go out advocating uh, this strange, weird, and wonderful uh, that doesn't seem to be uh, uh, understood fully. Uh, everyone, on the one hand, you're told that um, it's just placebo, and on the other hand, you're told that um, it's very dangerous. 
Now, you can't have it both ways. It's either not effective or it is effective, <laughs> etc. However, why is, it not, why is it not being used today? One of the problems is that the NHS has misclassified it as being um, complementary alternative. And because it's classified in that way, you can't get funding for training. You can't get funding for research. Um, that's one of the reasons. So A, you can't make money out of it, and B, um, you can't get funding from the NHS for it. Now, what the NHS do not realise, that the amount of suffering that could be reduced with the introduction of these techniques, very simple, the amount of money they could save would be huge. And it would also save our staff, because Paul and Sam will agree that when you use this in your everyday practice, it not only helps the patients, but it helps you. You feel calm, just as you noticed, Jenny, when Paul was talking. The whole place becomes calmer, more relaxed. I don't sound very relaxed. <laughs> Sadly, I'm a little bit too worked up, as it were, about how important it is for this message to get across. I think we've underutilized the anaesthetists in the past. It got stuck with the Freud put all sorts of weird ideas as to its use, whereas when Braid was using it and when Esdale were using it, they were looking at it purely from a physiological side of things, how it could help you um, reduce pain and reduce anxiety. Uh, but, you know, the thing about hypnosis is you can it covers the whole of medicine. It covers dentistry. It covers psychology. Where do we begin? Well, we're beginning with the anaesthetists because the anaesthetists lead the profession and they're doing a great job at the moment. <laughs> and all we need to do is get funding for the training. Um, and because the more people that learn how to do it, then the more it will spread. So that's what we're concentrating. Our society is concentrating at the moment on educating our colleagues so that this can be introduced not only across the NHS, but across the world. Because in, in poorer countries, just imagine if you can use utilise these skills there where you can't get the drugs necessarily and you can't get other kinds of technology, at least you could teach people this. You know, it's such a tragedy, which is what I've said before, and I'll say again. And that's why in my retirement, rather than having a lovely time on a beach somewhere, I'm doing this. <laughs> crazy <laughs> okay thank you jane and um and thank you for those observations also about the the change even if it's not as as quick as quick as we would like it to be so it's now time to draw this podcast to a close thank you very much to dr jane boissier dr samantha black and dr paul slater thank you for your time and for a really interesting discussion on this subject um, there is links in the info accompanying this podcast. There's links to the Preparing Your Mind Before Surgery series of recordings that were produced by the college and the British Society of Clinical and Academic Hypnosis. There are also links to other useful information and resources, such as on training and some of the, um, the, the other sources of information and evidence that have been mentioned in this podcast. Those links include a link to another college podcast on this topic, and that's an interview with Dr. Alan Cena, a world-leading expert on hypnocommunication who's been mentioned in this podcast, and that's about the techniques that he uses 
that's an interview that the college was fortunate enough to just secure at its annual conference in 2023. RCOA warmly welcomes members from across the globe. So if you're based outside of the UK, we invite you to discover the array of benefits available to you as an RCOA international affiliate. To learn more about joining and to explore the benefits of membership, visit rcoa.ac.uk forward slash international hyphen affiliate or click on the link in the show notes.